From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast, hosted by Paul Hanley. Colleagues and I at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center had the honor of hosting Raja Mohan in Beijing recently to participate in our Carnegie Global Dialogue. Raja is the founding director of Carnegie India, the Carnegie Endowment's newest and sixth global center based in New Delhi. Carnegie India's research and programs focus on the political economy of reform in India, foreign and security policy, and the role of innovation and technology in India's international relations. Carnegie India Center opened in April 2016 and recently celebrated its first anniversary. Raja, who I spoke with for this podcast, is a leading analyst of India's foreign policy, South Asian security, great power relations, and arms control. He's been a non-resident senior associate at Carnegie since 2012, as well as a distinguished fellow at the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi. He has also served as a member of India's National Security Advisory Board. In this podcast, Raja and I talk about what the Trump administration means for India and the broader Indo-Pacific region, as well as for China's relations with its South Asian neighbors. Raja shared interesting insights into how India might respond to challenges and even opportunities presented by potential changes to the U.S. role in the region and changes in the U.S.-China relationship. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Raja. I'm here this morning with、uh, Raja Mohan, the new director of the Carnegie Center of the new Carnegie Center in New Delhi, India. Welcome to the Car- China in the World podcast. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for being here.、Nice. You've been here now for three days、uh, as part of our Carnegie Global Dialogue.、Um, you've talked to a lot of different audiences: Chinese scholars, Chinese government officials, diplomats,、uh, media.、Um, you've noted in some of those discussions that you have seen a difference in the way that. Asia has reacted and responded to the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States, and the way that Europe has reacted to the election of Donald Trump. Can you explain what you mean by this, and how, and 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 tell us,、um, you know, what how, why that matters? Yeah, I think、uh, the Europeans, so most of them are friends and allies of the United States,、uh, have tended to see his election as a setback for the cause of liberal. Liberalism、sure. in the West. So, in a sense, some senses, their welcome was conditional. They were saying, you know, we hope、uh, this guy will follow the values of the West. Right. So, in a sense, he was seen as Chancellor Merkel says, yeah, exactly, yeah. something to that effect, right? Yeah. So, I think it was a it was a bit condescending. It was a、mm. bit critical. It was a bit grudging the welcome that the new president received. While in Asia, I think there was a sense that look. One, we have to deal with whoever is the president of the United States. It is what it is, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> and that we are not, we don't have a vote in the United States elections, right, right. so we got to deal with the U.S. The choices that the that the U.S. makes, but I think at a deeper level, is it more, was a, more of a pragmatic response yeah, yeah. versus an emotional response, yeah, perhaps yeah, to yeah. some degree? There was another aspect to it. I mean, I think through his election campaign, I, mean, I think、uh, Trump was saying, "Look, we don't want to interfere in other people's affairs." That the That the the corporatist liberal establishment that he derides in, in even now 
that these guys were trying to run the world, trying to mm-hmm. get into everybody's lives. We're not going to do that. We have interests. We're going to negotiate hard, but we're not going to try to make the world in our image, you know, in the American image. You, yeah. Over, yeah. So I think that is appealing to the Chinese, to the Indians or Southeast Asians hmm. who always feared the American, shall mm-hmm. we say, interventions in the internal affairs. So for them, it was, they thought this is a, a better way of dealing yeah. with the world. And second, since he talked about deal-making, uh, many Asians, certainly the Chinese, a lot of people uh, were quite happy to split difference and, and, right. and move on. So right. they seem to think uh, that, that we could do a better job with, uh, right. with... But the problem, of course, is today what we face, and quite some weeks and months after the election, uh, the doubts about uh, how effective, how efficient, how coherent the new administration is going to be. So I think people are beginning to cross their fingers and say, look, it's work in progress in Washington. The government right. is not yet formed. And that's where I think the kind of engagement that we'll see between President Xi and President Trump yeah. uh, is going to be so critical. You know, it's interesting. I I, I, under, I, I can uh, I agree with what you, the way you describe it. And I saw it play out here in China. Um, many Chinese came to the conclusion given the language about America's overreach being too involved in the world that Donald Trump used in the campaign, to conclude that if Donald Trump was president, there would be less strategic pressure on on China. And uh, I think that since the election, with the phone call to the Taiwan president, some of his tweets, they've sort of reassessed that. And at one point you heard people saying, we ought to abandon our illusions that Donald Trump is going to be good for us and went through a a different period. From your perch in New Delhi as the director of the Carnegie Center there, how have you uh, assessed the election of Donald Trump in terms of U.S.-India relations? I think for India, there are at least three sets of issues uh, that Mm. we have to deal with. And I think one, uh, Trump's emphasis on buy American. Mm. Uh, in a sense, the critique of globalization, the argument that the Americans have not really benefited from globalization, that has a big impact on India because India is uh, one of the late globalizers, probably one of the last major economies mm-hmm. to really reform. So just when you're beginning to right. kind of gain from globalization, the US yeah. and Europe begin to... Unfortunate timing for yeah, us yeah, to yeah, pull back yeah, on yeah. that. Yeah. So that will have some costs, but mm-hmm. I think that's something India will have to deal with. The second aspect is higher American... Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the where there's been in the last uh, 30 years, there's been an extraordinary influx of Indian professionals uh, mm-hmm. migrating to the U.S. or the Indian students sure. who study there, do jobs. And the people, you know, connecting with this new Silicon Valley in Bangalore. Yeah. That integration, will that be threatened by the president's determination mm-hmm. to say, look, H-1B visas have been misused and we're not going to let outsiders come and take out jobs. Yeah. Uh, so I think that is a problem. But there again, I think the uh, India is waiting to see mm-hmm. how the U.S. companies, which have a stake in the system, mm-hmm. they're going to react. So I think we're holding our breath uh, on that one. <laughs> right. But it's the third issue where there seems to be a positive opportunity for India. Mm. When the president says America's friends and allies must do more, sure. they must pick up the, they should not be free riders. They need right. to pick up some of the burden. I think it comes at a moment when India is beginning to see itself as a potential leader in the international system. We're not more able to contribute. Yeah, more yeah. able to contribute, more positive contributions to the international system. We've not fully risen like China. Mm-hmm. India is emerging as an important player, but I think there's a lot we can benefit from in a mm. system of burden sharing with the United States. 
Fascinating. You, you've also discussed this week the implications of Trump's America First policy uh, for the international framework. You, you compared uh, former President Kennedy's statement, pay any price, bear any burden, with Donald Trump saying to the effect of, what, what have you done for me lately? Um, and you've suggested that this may lead countries in Asia to hedge more uh, with respect to the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about that and describe how you see those dynamics taking place? Yeah. So I think uh, at a time when the China's power is rising, mm-hmm. and most neighbors feel the heat in one way or another, Yeah. And if the U.S. is seen as distracted, uncertain, and that because after all, the U.S. is not just looking at Asia. Uh, there is a problem with Russia, so therefore there's a renewed focus on Russia and Europe mm-hmm. and NATO. Uh, Middle East remains a perennial concern for the Americans. So the U.S. takes its eyes off the ball from Asia. Yeah. So many Asians are going to say, look, uh, is the U.S. going to be a reliable partner? Right. Uh, then how do I deal yeah. with the new situation arising China? Yeah a retrenching America, yeah. it's going to pose huge problems. And that's why yeah. I think we might be at a 71-like moment when the U.S. said, look, PRC exists, we're going to do business. And all the countries which had stayed away from PRC had to deal with PRC. Mm. Now, uh, we could be in a situation where uh, the smoothness of the relationship between U.S. and China is going to be ruptured. Others will have to make their own judgments. Yeah. Whether the U.S. and China collude or confront each other, uh, that's going to create problems for everyone around. And one of the first steps that Donald Trump took as president was to withdraw the United States from the TPP. Yeah. And um, I would imagine that this have a big impact on what you're describing. Exactly. And I think because the it has been taken for granted that the U.S. would be the, you know, the underwriter of Asia's globalization. Yeah. They could count on the U.S. to counterbalance yeah. 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 against yeah. China. Yeah. And if that is taken away... Uh, on that, that too on the economic front mm. uh, well, it's, it's going to be uh, people have to make fresh calculations and this way China has the potential to step into the vacuum mm. while everyone was fearing Chinese military power and hoping for an American economic collaboration now you have a, a complication where uh, American military power alone will not be able to deal with the questions that are going to come Let's talk a little bit, because you write a lot about great power relations. Um, you've talked about the development and growth in India, which has been miraculous over the last decades, still trails China. Um, you mentioned this week China has a GDP five times larger than India. Military spending is three times greater. Um, you've suggested that these trends, combined with uncertainty and possible turbulence in the U.S.-China relationship, could leave India in a vulnerable place. How is that? And and what, in your view, can India do to hedge its position and ensure its own security going forward? Uh, my sense is uh, India will have to factor this uncertainty in, uh, that a China that's become more assertive, a Russia that is becoming closer to the Chinese, and increasingly in a confrontation with the West, and a US that's uh, uncertain in terms of how it wants to deal with Asia. So I think we would want to preserve as much of a relationship with the United States, because the last 20 years, India's uh, strategic partnership with the U.S. has grown. So we need to preserve as much of that. Second, I think we need to limit our conflicts with China, Mm. because the number of issues which have been uh, below the surface have come back. The boundary is tense, uh, the uh, Tibet issue, uh, you have the Dalai Lama issue, so a whole lot of issues in China's relationship with Pakistan. So we've got to manage to limit the friction with China. Mm -hmm. Third, I think the most important thing for us 
simultaneously expand our relationship with other Asian countries, mm-hmm. especially with Japan, Australia, uh, ASEAN, that we need to create an Korea. Asian coalition yeah. mm-hmm. that can protect us from the violent shifts in the U.S.-China relationship. Mm-hmm. You talk about minimizing your differences with, with China. Looking at the India-China relationship, it seems to have become a bit rocky. Um, China is continuing to block India's bid for the nuclear suppliers yeah. group. India is developing, uh, China is developing deeper relations with Pakistan. At the same time, India seems to have taken, been taking a bolder approach to China, interacting with Taiwan, Dalai Lama, increasingly over the course of the past year. What are the the risks of these turning into flashpoints that erupt into a larger set of tensions? Yeah. And yeah. how can you you just mentioned the importance yeah. of managing these? Yeah. So how can that be done? I think what we've seen happen in the last two years, I, mean, I think the Chinese seem to ride roughshod over some of India's sensitivities that India has attempted to get getting into the nuclear supplies group yeah. or its concerns about terrorism. So India could react and say that look, if you don't respect my core security interests, I'm going to do something similar. But then there is a point beyond which these things could just spin out of control. Right. And that's where the problem is. And I think that's where the two sides will have to sit down and say, mm-hmm. uh, whatever might be the other problems that we have, we need to keep this, uh, you know, below yeah. the threshold. Yeah. But that is that is going to be a test. And I think there's some ways that process has started in the last few weeks. Let me uh, conclude by asking you one final question. You've been in China the last three days. You've talked about the importance, actually, of U.S. and China managing their relationship for India. Um, So I know and I know you're watching U.S.-China relations closely. Um, We're the two presidents, President Trump and President Xi, will have a a summit in Mar-a-Lago soon in early April. How do you see the state of that relationship, U.S.-China relations, what do you expect uh, for Mar-a-Lago and why is it important? Why is this summit between the two presidents important? I think it comes at a very critical moment where the president came in criticizing the, the China as an as a economic challenge to the U.S., as a, as a problem that must be dealt with. But we've already seen uh, in this conversations here that how the U.S. has walked back from some mm-hmm. of the more controversial propositions. But yet the Chinese fear that, look, if there is one thing that can rock Xi Jinping's vote. It is uh, it is the uh, presidency of Trump uh, because he's not uh, made in the same mold as the previous leaders and that he can, by simply doing things which these guys don't expect, can create problems for them. It's unpredictability, yeah. right? So I think the Chinese have a stake in stabilizing this relationship. My sense is one of the reasons why she agreed for an early summit is to be able to get something going with Trump before the administration is fully formed, so that you lock Trump into uh, some kind of a framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the for the, for the the president, uh, there's a way of actually saying that, look, I've got something from my hardline has paid off. So the key question for us as outsiders mm-hmm. is to see, is there going to be a deal? Right. A deal that would say, for example, uh, somewhat along the lines of what Jack Ma had told President Trump, mm-hmm. that, look, uh, we're going to come and invest, say, maybe lots of money, Chinese have lots of money, we're going to create jobs in the US, but then you've got to publicly defend my core security interests on territorial sovereignty, on Taiwan. Stabilize the relationship. So I think there might be an outlines of a deal, but given the nature of the two personalities, 
uh, that both are strong personalities, unpredictable, at least from the American side, and a leader that's not going to give in easily here in, in China. So I think it's a, it's a deal that uh, we'll be carefully watching and everyone is going to adapt to uh, what seems to be the direction of U.S.-China relationship. Fascinating. It's been fantastic to have you here in Beijing with us this week at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center, and we've enjoyed you joining the China in the World podcast. We'd like you to come back often if you uh, are willing to join us, and uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Paul. It's been a wonderful few days in Beijing, and I've learned a lot. Look forward to working with you Absolutely. in Delhi and elsewhere. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for this edition of Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast. I encourage you to explore our site and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in next time.